As you know, we are continuing our series, Friends with God, and we've been asking that question, is it really possible to know God? To know God is one of humanity's deepest desires. But how can it happen? In Ian Galloway's book, Called to Be Friends, which we've been basing this series on, he says the following in regards to how we approach Scripture. He says, when we read the Bible, we often take the approach of dissection. We chop it into pieces and separate all the parts. And we can learn a lot that way. But dissection is what we do to dead things. To observe something living is much more like a safari. We have to get up close. We have to stay really quiet. We need to be patient and watch carefully. And there are those exciting moments when a wonderful living creature starts walking towards us. One of the most effective ways to look into a living story is to ask questions. By doing that, we can see it more completely. We're not trying to extract information and take a bit of it away. We are trying to absorb the whole story. We are taking the text as it is and enjoying the story as it happens. We are simply trying to see what is there. Friendship is a process. A journey of discovery, simply put, being present through it all. It takes time, commitment, involves absorbing and observing someone. We ask questions, but we also take time to really listen. We share our emotions and our thoughts and slowly learn as we begin to trust to widen the spectrum of those emotions as our relationship deepens and we become more comfortable in our own skin. Our story this morning is from John's Gospel, chapter 4, verses 43 to 54. It's going to come up on the screen behind me, but feel free to follow. And the story is about the healing of the royal official's son. I want us to read this passage together and let's read it through the lens of friendship. What might we discover about Jesus? What does he mean to me? What do we mean to him? So from verse 43. After the two days, he left for Galilee. Now Jesus knew well from experience that a prophet is not respected in the place where he grew up. So when he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him only because they were impressed with what he had done in Jerusalem during the Passover feast. Not that they really had a clue about who he was or what he was up to. Now he went, to, now he went back to Cana of Galilee, the place where he made the water into wine. Meanwhile in Capernaum, there was a certain official from the king's court whose son was sick. When he heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went and asked that he come down and heal his son, who was on the brink of death. Jesus put him off. Unless you people are dazzled by a miracle, you refuse to believe. But the court official would not be put off. Come down, it's life or death for my son. Jesus simply replied, go home, your son lives. The man believed the bare word Jesus spoke and headed home. On his way back, his servants intercepted him and announced, your son lives. He asked them what time he began to get better. They said the fever broke yesterday afternoon at one o'clock. The father knew that there was, that was the very moment Jesus had said, your son lives. 
That settled it. Not only he, but his entire household believed. This now was the second sign Jesus gave after having come from Judea into Galilee. So here we have a royal official, a very significant person. He has heard that Jesus has come to Cana. He is well briefed in his job. He is from Capernaum, and he has heard all the stories about Jesus and the healings that keep happening. He has walked along the main road. It's at least 20 miles and uphill, but he's desperate. His son is so sick, he's dying. He has some people with him. Of course, you know, he's a royal official. What is interesting to note, though, is by the end of the story, he is simply called the Father. I believe John is using this change to signify something deeper and wider, which we'll touch on in a moment. But perhaps what stands out most is Jesus' initial response to the official Unless you people see signs and wonders, you refuse to believe. Jesus seems to be rebuking this man. It might seem that Jesus was harsh towards him. He just wanted his son healed, but he encountered many in Galilee who were just interested in his miracles. So he questioned the man accordingly. You see, signs and wonders can lead a person towards belief in God and can validate a heavenly messenger, but they can also have no effect on a person. Signs and wonders from God are obviously good things, but they should not form the foundation of our faith. We should not depend on them to prove God to us. In themselves, signs and wonders cannot change the heart. We see that in Israel's story, don't we? They saw incredible things. They even heard the voice of God at the mountain. Yet a short time later, they worshipped a gold calf. If we think about the story of the Samaritan woman, which happened just before this in the previous chapter, she believed because of Jesus' word. The Jews would not believe, but through signs. The reluctance and delay are probably the most unusual and striking feature of this story, but it's very compelling particularly as it's not the first time Jesus responds in this way. Need in others can be used in a controlling way, can't it? Jesus uses reluctance and delay to safeguard his freedom. He does not respond immediately to need. He waits and responds to God. Too often we can become enmeshed in other people's needs and we are no longer helpful to them or to ourselves. Need, even desperate need, is not the engine of faith and obedience to God. Jesus' ability to recognize and respond to the negative effects of these signs is also very attractive. Sometimes the good things we do give rise to a very bad response in others. Our actions reveal the darkness. Jesus is not thrown by this. He does not seek or need others' approval and praise. He can cope when people respond badly. His empathy and vulnerability are deeply compelling. As we saw in last week's story of Lazarus, Lazarus, we struggle to understand how Jesus could be weeping with Mary one minute and then calling Lazarus to life the next. And we assume that Jesus performing signs would overrule any grief he might feel at Lazarus' death. But that's not the case. Jesus is vulnerable throughout. He is vulnerable in feeling 
and participating in the grief at death. And he is doing the sign. He doesn't suddenly become a triumphant wonder worker celebrating his great success. After all, death is still real. Sickness is still real. Lazarus himself will die again. The signs all point beyond themselves. They point to the great miracle, the cross. We saw this at the very first sign. Part of Jesus' reluctance, which he expresses to his mother, is this. My hour has not yet come. We have to read to find out a bit more. And this is the way John has arranged his gospel. He's chosen these stories carefully and prayerfully. They are written to reveal Jesus in such a way that we can know him and become a close friend. We all have stories in our family that we tell again and again. They sum up who we are, our quirky little ways. And if you know those stories, you can work out what we're really like and what matters to us. So what might be going on here as we cast our vision, perhaps a little wider, beyond and around this story of the official and his son? Towards the end of the story, you find a little turn of phrase. What did, what did Jesus, well, sorry, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs, it says. The phrase comes up once more in the gospel and then never comes up again. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee, as we read in our passage. It seems John is nudging us as the reader to take a closer look. John is full of those little touches. They're signposts for us inside the story that help us to read the narrative better. I wondered whether these two stories belong together, the first sign and second sign. So that's where we're going to go next. Following the first sign, water into wine, it says it revealed Jesus' glory and the disciples believed him. The second sign was the healing of the official son. And again, it says the whole household responded by believing in him. But let's look at what else is going on. You'll see behind me um, in chapters 2 to chapters 4, if Megan puts that up. So chapter 2, we've got the wedding. Jesus turns water into wine, and that's the first sign, a miracle. Chapter 3, Jesus encounters Nicodemus, and he's talking about being born again. Then in chapter 4, we've got the Samaritan woman at the well, and Jesus talks to her about thirst and a spring of water. And then in our story here, we've got the healing of the official son, and that's the second sign, the miracle. So we have two miracles regarded as signs, and they're sandwiched between two significant conversations. There's certainly a theme of water, but there also seems to be a theme of transformation and change when we encounter Jesus. Even within our passage, there are three transitions as noted within the story, moving from being called the official to the father, moving from belief in what Jesus could do for him to belief in Jesus, not just him, but the whole household, and also obviously sickness to help with the healing of the son. The second sign story is paralleled with the first sign story of changing water into wine. John mentions this at the start of our story because he wants us to be mindful of it. So let's hold this idea, this theme of transformation and change. When Jesus was speaking to the Samaritan woman, we get an alternative story that sits alongside this one. In a very real sense, the nature of God is compassion and a desire to heal. That's why he responded to the official. But his reluctance 
highlights the real purpose of his presence on earth, which he begins to uncover in those conversations with Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. You'll be familiar with the story at the well. Steph taught on it a few weeks back. Jesus asks for a drink of water, which sparks off a whole conversation about thirst and an eternal spring. To sum this story up, Jesus was saying, water in the moment can quench thirst, but inevitably you'll be thirsty again. Equally, Jesus can and does heal the official son, but as we are all acutely aware, sickness will return again. Jesus' purpose and desire is the sign that John is alluding to, a transformation like no other, water into wine, new birth being born again, a continual spring never to thirst again, and life beyond death. I want to give you life that will last beyond the grave, that overcomes sickness and death once and for all. As he says to the woman at the well, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come to draw water again. This is the challenge and this is the desire of John that we would encounter Jesus, his words, his actions, his miracles, his wisdom, his mystery, his healings. And in doing so, we would experience something of the transformation that not only sees the light, but let it, lets it shine in our innermost being, in all the dark places of our soul that seeks to see this light illuminate the world around us, a light of justice and compassion and hope that can truly transform, that truly sees his kingdom come. As we close, I want us to think about belief in this passage and what it might have to do with relationship and friendship. As we've already noted, John moves from the name official to father, and this parallels with two types of belief the official was displaying. In verse 50, it says, the man believed in the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. However, in verse 53, when the official, now referred to as the father, hears not only that his son has been healed, but it occurred at the exact hour Jesus said to him, your son will live. This brings about a different kind of belief that also impacts his whole household. It says in verse 53 that he himself believed and all his household. So when the official encounters Jesus, his belief was centered on Jesus' ability to heal. We can understand on a very human level, this is what concerned him most, that his son would be healed. But there seems to be a suggestion from John's account that shifted to a belief in the person of Jesus, not just his words in a moment. The father knew that knew that was sorry, the father knew that was the hour when Jesus said to him, Your son will live, and he himself believed in all his household. He was someone worth following in that moment and listening to. So there's this movement from what can Jesus do to me, do for me, to fidelity. The idea of a, a faithfulness to a person, a desire to be with and follow, to put our confidence in someone, to trust someone emphatically, an acknowledgement of Jesus as Savior, which invokes a response of devotion. 
can we sometimes just be interested in what Jesus can do for us? Or are we interested in encountering him as a true friend? I wonder whether you can recount a time in your life when you encountered Jesus in this way, when he revealed himself as a friend worth following, not just seeking something he could do for you, but just to simply enjoy being in his presence. Encountering Jesus is never a one-off affair. As I spoke about at the very beginning in regards to friendship, relationship, certainly any relationship worth its salt requires consistency through all of life and its varying degrees of joy, sadness, hope, loss, certainty and confusion. confusion. Do not be surprised if you find your belief is rocked. Moments of great faith, trust and certainty can quickly become doubts and confusion. This is normal. Perhaps one of my favorite verses in the Bible is when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He cries out in anguish and turmoil, if this cup can be taken from me, let it. Yet not my will, but yours. A real demonstration of Jesus' humility and his humanity. He was in conflict about what lay ahead of him. But he trusted in his relationship with the Father, his friendship with the Father, in the midst of this. And he demonstrates the same with us. What is apparent in this movement of the official is a faith that deepens into the person of Jesus, not just what he can do for him in the moment. This is truly foundational, particularly in moments of doubt and questions around faith, theology, church, society, injustice, loss, and pain. If we can trust who Jesus is, his character, his friendship, his desire to walk with us through all of this, not to judge us or separate himself from us, but to be, simply put, a true friend.